собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. In each episode, we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. And as always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. So the SRB podcast is back after a hiatus in August. My interns are gone, though a new one is coming on board. You'll meet her in the coming weeks. This episode is an interview I did before the break with Alexander Morrison about his new book, The Russian Conquest of Central Asia. And over the past few years, I've become increasingly interested in Russian imperialism It's not just because of the people I've interviewed, which are many, dealing with issues of ethnicity and Russian expansionism, but also as a way to think about other forms of imperialism and colonialism in history, especially when it comes to continental empires like the United States and Russia, and particularly in the American case, a similar spread or expansion of the American state over the North American continent, incorporating having to deal with different types of ethnic and racial groups. Um, I always see Russia as an interesting comparison to that uh, because it it had to do something similar in terms of incorporating all sorts of different types of people. But in like the United States, a lot of those people are still around. Um, there wasn't an, an effort to either both ethnically cleanse, though in some cases there were in the Russian case, let's be honest, but certainly not on the level of what has happened to Native Americans in the United States. So the history of how Russia spread across the Eurasian continent and into Central Asia uh, is particularly interesting to me and its ramifications for not only the Soviet period, but also for the present. So. Alexander Morrison is a fellow and tutor in history at New College Oxford University. His research focuses on empire and colonial warfare, particularly on Russians in Central Asia. And his most recent book is what we'll be talking about today, The Russian Conquest of Central Asia, which is published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, without further ado, here's Alexander Morrison. Well, Alexander, it's, it's nice to talk to you because um, when I did see your book, uh, The Russian Conquest of Central Asia, it's I, I've become, of, in the last couple of years, really fascinated with uh, Russian imperialism and the Russian Empire. Um, it, you know, a lot of it is because I've done a lot of interviews with people. Also, I, in my own interest in looking at doing comparative, uh, learning about the comparative between, say, the United States and Russia and their their respective territorial expansions. So, um, but just to, to start our, our conversation, why don't you introduce yourself? So, my name is Alexander Morrison. I'm fellow and tutor in history at New College Oxford, um, translated into American. I think that means I'm an associate professor. Um, and before coming to Oxford four years ago, I taught for three and a half years in Kazakhstan at Nazarbayev University, before that uh, at the University of Liverpool, 
Uh, and I'm a historian of Russian imperialism and uh, focusing especially on the Russian Empire in Central Asia uh, in the 19th century, or at least in, in the pre-revolutionary period. So your new book is Rush, The Russian Conquest of Central Asia, a study in imperial expansion, 1814 to 1914. So what, what drew you to this subject? So um, Russian imperialism is a long-standing interest of mine. Um, actually, I was originally a, a South Asian scholar by training, um, which is a bit more usual in the UK because of the, the very strong sort of historic connections with, with India. Um, and um, I worked on British imperialism in India, but I'd studied Russian at school and I thought, well, it's a pity not to use it in some way. So I thought I would um, write my PhD on what seemed to me to be the, sort of the most colonial periphery of the Russian Empire. Uh, and to do so um, as a, a comparison with um, with British India, so that was that was the topic of my first book, which was published now more, more than ten years ago. Um, and um, as I was researching that book, um, obviously the question of, of of how this empire came to be um, sort of figured, at least in part. So I had a, a short section talking about how the Russians captured Samarkand, which is the focus of that book, uh, in 1868. Um, and a little bit of speculation on, on what I thought the Russians were, were doing in Central Asia. Uh, and then I left that topic um, and um, uh, devoted myself more to looking at the, the colonial administration. Um, but um, my interest in, in this question of you know, why empires expand in general, why the Russian Empire expanded into Central Asia in particular, um, never went away. Um, and uh, I felt that a lot of the existing scholarship on this was really very um, inadequate. Uh, that um, there wasn't really a sort of proper understanding of what had motivated the Russians uh, to, to, to conquer this region. Um, and um, then I spent um, you know, three and a half years actually living in Kazakhstan. I got much more of a sense um, uh, of the, uh, the landscape of the region as well, of some of the sort of the, the I suppose, the environmental factors that were involved. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it when I when I finished um, um, uh, when I finished my my first book, um, I decided this was something that I ought to I ought to have a look at. But originally, I I thought I could write it uh, more based upon secondary literature. I thought I could write a book that was perhaps more for a popular audience. Um, and then inevitably, I got sucked back into the archives, which are really my my first love as a historian. And also, I decided that actually the yeah the, the historiography wasn't adequate. I needed to write something that was that was really founded on on primary sources. Yeah, I I, I get the sense, and I mean this is the case for a, a lot of uh, books that I interview people about. But it the source of it tends to be somewhat of a a frustration or a feeling that there's something really important that's missing in our in our understanding and our narrative and you do something that is not very fashionable uh, <laughs> it's pretty old school in the sense that uh, it's military history um you know it's not military history as as one might imagine it in terms of you know battles and stuff like this but it is primarily focused on the military conquest um, so why did you take that approach as opposed to some of the other, you know, books that deal with uh, Russian imperialism? Yeah, that, that is that is a good question because I never had any intention of ending up as a military historian. Um, you know, I thought of myself very much as a historian of, of colonialism, and obviously, uh, the history of the military comes into that, especially in the case of Russia, because most of Russia's sort of Asian peripheries were run by a military administration in the nineteenth century. But still, I really never thought of myself as somebody who was going to be sort of you know writing writing stuff about battles and about um, gun calibers and um, uh, military logistics and so on. Um, and I guess there are, there are 
couple of reasons why the book ended up um, uh, having that sort of focus. Although, I mean, it, it, I'd, I'd say it sort of pivots between military um, and diplomatic history some, in, in part because quite a lot of it is also about sort of motivations for conquest and, and the official mind. Um, and one of them is that, you know, the, the more I sort of got into it, the more I realized um, that I really did need to try to understand the sort of the mechanics of this, particularly given that the, the numbers involved on the Russian side were so tiny. You know, so they, the Russians keep winning these these um, crushing victories um, against forces sort of ten times their size, um, and even allowing for a certain amount of exaggeration in the sources. I really needed to understand what was going on, sort of here technically, as it were. Um, so that was that was part of it, uh, and the other part, I'm afraid, is is a bit more sort of mercenary, but. Um, uh, um, the job I was appointed to here in Oxford is, you will be unsurprised to hear, not a job in Central Asian history. <laughs> it is a job in the history of war, um, which, uh, so yeah, Central Asianists will be very familiar with the, the fact that you generally have to sort of, um, um, <laughs> you have to have several strings to your bow in order to get hired. No, very few people are going to hire you because of your specialism in, in Central Asia. So um, yes, partly out of the kind of necessities of my position, I needed to sort of tweak the focus a little bit. Um, uh, and actually, you know, that was that ended up being a very um, uh, rewarding process in many ways. Um, you know, I, I, it, it helped me a lot with my teaching, apart from anything else. So, so what is the story you're you're trying to tell with this book? Um, so, and you're you're right to use the word story. It's the word I use myself in the introduction. I mean, the book is a it is a narrative um, primarily, uh, and it's a narrative that spans the whole of the nineteenth century. Um, and um, I'm trying to tell the story, really, of how most of Central Asia, obviously with the exception of, um, of what we now call Xinjiang and Jungaria, uh, became Russian. Uh, and in certain very meaningful ways remains Russian to this day, even though it is now, of course, five uh, independent um, republics. Um, the Russian in cultural influence there, um, uh, the legacy is still sort of preponderant. Um, it's a sort of major transformation of recent times. Um, and it, it seemed to me we simply did not understand the origins of this at all. There were a number of very lazy uh, grand narratives um, uh, in existence. There's an economic one. There was um, one relating to um, a supposed Russian threat to British India. Um, but um, none of these actually sort of really seem to get down into the nitty gritty of, of how and why the Russians conquered the region. So um, some of it is about, uh, as I mentioned, some of it's about diplomatic history. It's about understanding de decision making processes. It's about trying to recreate or reconstruct the chains of causation uh, as so, insofar as they're revealed in the archival documents, um, uh, which can help us to understand why certain people made certain decisions when they did. Um, some of it is about the sort of the actual experience um, of um, both uh, participating in the conquests on the Russian side and being on the receiving end um, on the Central Asian side. So it's quite a lot of description um, in the book as well. Um, and um, uh, yeah, some of it is, I think, also um, about trying to put Central Asia itself at the center of this story, which is usually being told as a story of um, great power rivalry. Yeah, I, I I want to actually have you address this this idea that we tend to think of it as a great power rivalry because you know when most people, even many people who are well trained in in Russia and Russian history, when you think of Russia's conquest of Central Asia, the idea of the great game, you know, between Russia and Britain, all inevitably comes up and it continues to come up today, right? There's all, there's an attempt to kind of refashion a new great game in, <laughs> in, in our imagination and harking back to this one in the 19th century to understand in many respects the present. 
but you um actually quite are quite critical of the idea of the great game as a motivation um so wh where do you stand on on its explanatory power well, I mean, on one sense, my stance is a bit self-defeating. If I put Great Game in the title of this book, I th I'm sure it would have sold at least four times as many copies, <laughs> and probably I would have got a much better deal from my from my publisher. Um, I mean, I have a slightly conflicted um, relationship with it in that um, it was reading Peter Hopkirk's um, blockbuster, The Great Game, gosh, when I was probably about 12 or 13 years old, um, that first got me interested in Central Asia. So I, I have to acknowledge, you know, that there is a, a certain utility to this narrative as a kind of hook to drag people into the region. The trouble is that for most people, and certainly in the kind of public perception, um, interest in Central Asia very rarely goes beyond that. Um, uh, um, you know, there are two dominant cliches, I guess, when we talk about Central Asia. One is the Silk Road, and the other is, is the Great Game. And both of them can help in terms of generating public interest in the region and, and drawing in um, uh, you know, lay people to listen to things they might not otherwise listen to. But in the end, neither of them, I think, has, does actually have much explanatory power. And the problem with the, with the Great Game is that ultimately it's an extremely Anglo-centric um, uh, version of 19th century Central Asian history. And it's, it's really been the, in some ways that phrase has been the bane of my life actually ever since I sort of started um, working on this region, you know, more 20 years ago it is now when I began my PhD and whenever I said what I was working on, people said, ah, the game, the great game. And uh, because, you know, they've all read their, they've all read their Kipling and, uh, and um, it's, it's such a sort of evocative. And particularly in the British imagination, you know, all these, these, um, Heavily mustachioed explorers and army officers, people like Fred Burnaby, Francis Young Husband, you know, they loom very large in, in the public imagination. There's something in, sort of irresistibly romantic about this idea of them sort of, you know, pitting their wits against their Russian counterparts in, amidst all this glorious Central Asian scenery. But of course, what gets left out of this picture is Central Asia itself. It gets reduced to nothing more than a sort of picturesque backdrop to this story of great power rivalry. Uh, Central Asians have no role, they have no agency at all in this. And in the end, uh, you know, what actually happened in the 19th century? The Russians conquered Central Asia. The British didn't conquer it. Um, you know, they made a couple of very unsuccessful attempts to conquer Afghanistan, but basically they, they stayed in India. Um, so this is a story about Russia and about Central Asia, in which the British really are at the margins. That's where they, well, that's where they ought to be. Um, you know, very occasionally they, they sort of insert themselves into the story when the Russians are genuinely worried about what they're getting up to, which is mainly at the times of the, the First and the Second Anglo-Afghan Wars. But the rest of the time, the Russians, um, even if you rely mainly on Russian sources, as I have done, um, they are mainly preoccupied about their relations with Central Asian peoples, the Central Asian states. Um, they're not really thinking about the British. So we get a hugely distorted um, vision of what this is all about. And in the end, the, the idea that the Russians conquered Central Asia in order to threaten the British in India is just wrong. <laughs> it's, 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 it's false. I mean, it's not there in the, in the sources. It is a British perception. And as a British perception, it's important because it caused the British to do a number of very stupid things in the course of the 19th century and because it, it plays its outsized role in the in popular culture and the popular imagination. In terms of actually allowing us to understand how and why Central Asia was conquered by Russia, it, it doesn't help us at all. So your book does cover the whole, you know, the 19th century, the short 19th century as opposed to the long 19th century. Um, but in, in that sense, you know, it covers this century of Russian territorial expansion, continental expansion. So uh, set the scene for us in the Russian Empire uh, and, and the context for this imperialist thrust 
uh, beginning after the Napoleonic Wars. So when I when I began the book, I wasn't quite certain sort of where I should begin, if, if you know what I mean. I mean, I knew that the the first major sort of Russian thrust um, deep into Central Asia came in, in 1839 when they launched an unsuccessful expedition against Khiva, and that, that is where um, most previous histories, certainly in Russian, have tended to begin. Um, but um, I began when I, I actually began writing the book or, or wrote the very first chapter of it um, when I was on a visiting fellowship in Sapporo in, um, at Hokkaido University. And there uh, I presented a chapter on this to, to, to Tomohiko Yama, who is a great expert on the, um, um, the history of the relationship between the Russian Empire and the Kazakhs in particular. And he said, OK, you, you're explaining here sort of, you know, um, how and why um, the Russians sort of um, began to sort of launch this, 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 these first attempts to conquer Central Asia. But you haven't explained why it happened when it did. You know, there are all these proximate causes that lead the Russians to think that they've got to do something about their Central Asian frontier. You know, they've got uh, caravan raids, um, um, particularly coming from Khiva. Um, so there's quite extensive Russian trade um, uh, with Bukhara, mainly in the hands of Tatar merchants. Um, uh, and uh, this is being disrupted by the Khivans. Um, there is the rebellion, as the Russians call it, um, or sort of um, national resistance, as the Kazakhs call it, of Kenesari Kasimov between 1837 and 1847. Um, there's perennial Russian complaints about the fact, you know, that the Kazakhs on the frontier are not acknowledging Russian sovereignty, that they're being turbulent, that, you know, the Central Asian frontier is a, is a dangerous and a violent place, that Russians are being carried off as slaves, which indeed they, they were um, uh, in the 1830s and 1840s. But um, as, you know, Professor Yama pointed out to me, you know, all these things were true in the 18th century as well. You know, the Russians have established their frontier on the steppe through a series of fortified lines, uh, uh, between um, around um, 1720 and 1740 uh, um, with the establishment of fortresses such as Orenburg and, and Omsk. And then the frontier stays in the same place for 100 years. You know, they don't advance. Um, they, they, they sort of reinforce their presence there. They claim sovereignty over the Kazakhs, although they're not really um, actually administering them in any, in any meaningful way. Um, but basically the frontier is static. And then in the early 19th century, it starts to move. And, and it's not that Central Asia was quiet in the, 19, in the 18th century and then became turbulent in the 19th. It was a lot more turbulent in the 18th century. You have the Pugachev Rebellion, you know, which actually almost destroyed the Russian state. So um, clearly what's changed is not um, in Central Asia. What must have changed is something in the um, Russian mindset. And I found the origin of that, this is one of the main arguments of the book, it's not necessarily one that everybody would agree with, uh, in Russia's victory in the Napoleonic Wars. Um, it's, Russia certainly could, you know, had some claim to great power status within Europe from at least the reign of, of Catherine the Great onwards. But it's, it's really, it's when Alexander the, the first marches his, his troops into Paris in 1814, that's the point at which Russia becomes one of only two global powers, and the other one is Britain. Um, and there's a sort of huge sort of uptick, basically, in its status uh, and also in its self-perception as a European, very self-consciously a European great power. And it's this which, which to me, is the sort of crucial shift. And it's why the starting date for the book is, is 1814. Um, it's the, the, what I call the Napoleonic generation. So those who came of age during the Napoleonic Wars, the most important figure is Vasily Pirovsky, who became governor of Orenburg. And they're not prepared to tolerate this kind of behavior from Central Asians anymore. You know, they say, you know, these, these people are primitive, they're backward, they're insolent, they don't recognize our power, they must be punished. 
So is it is it in a, if I understand it correctly is it a Russian after the defeat of Napoleon now it has this great power status amongst European powers so is it Russia is joining what a, a trend that's going through great powers you know how states see themselves as great powers in the 19th century so you know France uh Britain uh, even the United States to some extent the Ottomans is is this what's going on it's part of this more globalizing trend of great power status? Yes, I think so. I mean, that, that term great power dates from this this period. I think it's first used by, by Ranka. Um, and um, there's definitely a, a sense of kind of competitive emulation of sort of keeping up with the Joneses. Um, and, you know, the, for, so the British are important in the sense that they are an example to emulate. They're kind of the preeminent um, example of a power that's managed to turn colonies into great power status. You know, this is something the Russians admire very much in the British, that you know they are able to leverage, particularly their rule in India, um, as a means of achieving great great power status. Um, but it's not only the British. You know, They also evoke the French conquest of Algeria, actually, as something that they ought to be emulating in Central Asia. There's definitely a sense that if you are, if you want to be recognized as a member of the club, if you want to be seen as a great power, you know, this, you've got to have, you've got to uh, make sure that your Asian neighbours or your non-European neighbours um, sort of know their place, as it were, that they are not um, insolent. And that's that's very much the kind of mentality that you see at play really throughout this period. I mean, as I made clear in the introduction to the book, in terms of the specific circumstances of all the campaigns the Russians fight, they vary enormously uh, and they do need to be sort of um, taken one by one. But the, the constant, I guess, is what you might call the Russian official mind, taking a term used by, by Robinson and Gallagher um, in their classic history of the scramble for Africa, um, which uh, uh, is, is very much about this, this self-perception that, you know, we are a great power, we have to maintain certain standards, we have to maintain respect, uh, and we cannot tolerate insolence because that will be taken as a sign of weakness, not just by our Central Asian neighbors, but also by our European rivals. Um, so... Your story is is very much about military conquest and the role of the military as kind of the spearhead of this ex expansion. Um, talk about the role of the military because you know what there's a certain um, you know contradiction of sorts in the sense that the military is engaging in these battles. It has technological superiority over its Central Asian over Central Asian locals. However, it's they're not great wars in the sense, like in the terms of casualties, at least on the Russian side, on the Central Asian side, something else. But how does the military work in this this territorial expansion? Hmm. So the conquest of Central Asia tends to get left out of the broader military history of Russia. You know, we have some we have some very good histories of the Russian military in the nineteenth century um, by. Um, uh, the likes of Bruce Menning or, or Roger Rees, but the Central Asian campaigns don't figure prominently, and that's because seen, you know, from a purely military perspective, they're extremely minor. You know, they they have um, uh, rarely have more than about three to five thousand men engaged in, in in any of the expeditions. The single largest one is Skobelev's expedition to Guptepe in 1881, which has just eleven thousand men. So these are, by European standards, these are these are tiny forces of troops, and they're fought by very sort of, um, I guess, sort of. <laughs> marginal, unfashionable units of the Russian army. Um, so, you know, we're not talking about guards regiments or um, uh, or anything of that kind. Um, it's the Orenburg Cossacks, the Ural Cossacks, the Turkestan Line regiments. I mean, these are, these are very, very unfashionable um, military units. They mainly recruit 
uh, in the, the sort of the Ural region, um, uh, sort of well away from the Russian metropole. Yet you do get sort of better connected officers descending on Central Asia for specific campaigns because they're hoping to get a medal, get promoted, and you know then they they disappear again. Um, but actually, I would say that um, it is, you know, it, it deserves to be seen as significant for, for a couple of reasons. Um, you know, one is that actually, you know, these are the only consistently successful campaigns that the Russian army fights throughout the whole of the 19th century. You know, in other respects, its its record is pretty mixed, <laughs> it's fair to say. Uh, whether we're looking at Crimea, the Russo-Turkish War of 1877-8, yes, they are victorious ultimately, but, you know, only uh, at a much, much higher cost than they'd anticipated. The Russo-Japanese War, of course, is a, is a disaster. Um, so um, uh, if you look at um, writings from the time, from the late Tsarist period, actually they place a lot of emphasis on this because they, you know, they see it as a, it, it, it's sort of redeeming in a way, you know. Um, and it's also important because actually a number of people who made their name in the Russian conquest become very prominent within the Russian military, notably um, Mikhail Skobilev and Alexei Kuropatkin, uh, who becomes Minister of War. So they're able to kind of leverage their their victories in Central Asia um, into, in, into, into that. So, I mean, again, um, I don't think the conquest of Central Asia is important primarily because it was important for the Russian military. It was important because, you know, um, uh, it was important for Central Asia. Um, but um, the other thing, of course, is that the military is absolutely central, not just to how Central Asia is conquered, but to how it's administered. So the same people who conquer it end up running it basically until 1917. That's, that's, um, it's under military administration. In many cases, the personnel are, are the same. So inevitably, you have to understand a good deal about the kind of institutional culture of the Russian military in order to understand Russian colonialism in the region. As you said earlier, you, you know, you wanted to bring Central Asia back into the story rather than it just being this like backdrop landscape. So, you know, what role did Central Asian locals play in this 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 process of Russian imperial expansion? Well, they play um, a crucial role in in at least a couple of ways. I mean, firstly, obviously, as opponents. <laughs> so um, it's not that the Russian, you know, there is this Soviet legend that it was all the Dobrovolnaya Prisadinia that was a voluntary uniting to Russia, and of course, this is nonsense. Um, there was a lot of resistance to the Russian advance. Um, most of it was ineffective, but there were some important exceptions. So Kenesari, who waged a guerrilla war against um, the expansion of Russian power for about 10 years, uh, was a very effective leader. He seems to be an extremely charismatic. Um, and um, the kinds of tactics that he uses were very, very difficult for, for the Russians to defeat because he was much more mobile than they were. Um, Alim Kul, who was the military commander of Kokand, uh, was again um, um, from a Kipchak, from a, a nomadic or semi-nomadic background. Again, seems to have been a very effective leader. Unfortunately for the Kokandis, he was killed on the eve of the decisive Russian assault on, on Tashkent, which may have made a, a crucial difference. Um, so, um, uh, you know, the Russians, although they, they do tend to win their victories mostly quite easily, there are some important exceptions, um, they take Central Asian military capability quite seriously. They're often worried about, um, um, you know, because the, the margin between success and failure is often a very slim one. Uh, um, prior to his successful assault on Tashkent in 1865, Chen Yaev has been beaten back in 1864. And given that he's, you know, he has a force of just 3,000 men, you know, very, very isolated from the nearest um, uh, um, sort of major Russian settlement, um, he's in a very precarious position, in fact. Um, and of course, they sometimes um, massively underestimate the ability of Central Asians to resist them. And this happens most spectacularly at uh, um, Göktepe or Dengeltepe in 1879, 
when General Lamarkin launches a premature assault on the fortress that the Turkmen have, be, have built there and is, is beaten off and humiliated. Um, so, um, you know, the, 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 it's not that, um, uh, that, that Central Asian states, Central Asian peoples put up no resistance to, to the Russians. But then the other, the other area where Central Asian agency is really important um, is that the Russians themselves would not have been able to conquer Central Asia without it. Uh, and this is primarily because of what we might characterize as the sort of the uh, alliance is not quite the right word, but um, the sort of condominium almost between the Russians and uh, the Kazakhs, uh, at least of the junior and the middle hordes, maybe also to some extent of the great horde. So the Russians are very heavily reliant on Kazakh expertise, um, firstly in rearing animals, so um, there are an awful lot of camels in this book. Um, uh, that's not, not something I'd entirely anticipated when I when I start when I started out writing it. But um, you know, logistically, you can't do anything in Central Asia without camels. It doesn't matter how modern your weapons are. You need camels to move around. The Russians don't know how to breed camels, um, so they're reliant on the Kazakhs to breed them and also to manage them. So every Russian expedition is accompanied by a significant number of Kazakh drivers. And they also rely on the Kazakhs as scouts and as guides. Um, and they would never, for instance, have been able to conquer Hiva in 1873 without uh, Kazakh knowledge of where the wells were on the routes that they were that they were taking. Um, and this reflects the fact that the, the relationship between the Russian state and Kazakh elites, at least, is slightly different from what you see um, in the rest of Central Asia after it's conquered, because it dates back to an earlier period, to a period of Russian statecraft when the, uh, the Starist state is still basically co-opting non-Russian nobilities on more or less equal terms. So if you think about the, the, the Polish nobility, the Georgian nobility, the Tatar nobility, if we go back even to the 16th century, um, they retain their noble rights. They are incorporated into the Russian. And that's that's classic sort of early modern imperial statecraft. That's how you expand. You, you co-opt the elites of the reason, regions that you expand into. And the Russians do this to some extent with the Kazakhs in the 18th century. They're forging uh, uh, relations of patronage with um, Chinggisid elites in, in the junior and in the middle hordes, and they're able to draw upon these. Uh, so these are, these are people who are given arist uh, um, aristocratic status, noble, um, they belong to the noble estate, they're uh, commissioned as officers in the Russian army in some cases. The most famous example, of course, is, is Shokan Balikhanov. Um, and um, uh, they provide that crucial sort of element of um, local knowledge and expertise that allows the Russians to conquer um, the steppe. Uh, and their collaboration is vital, particularly in the 1840s, 50s, and, and, and 60s. Do they, do they bring them into, like, the administration after the conquering? Like, do they get a piece of, you know, in terms of their own local power? No, they don't. So from the 1860s, you know, Central Asia is, is sort of is conquered and incorporated in the empire. You see a change in the way Russian statecraft works in the region. Uh, there's a residual group of Kazakhs who still have noble status, but basically that older model um, is abandoned uh, in favor of a much more obviously um, colonial model of administration where uh, all the sort of higher and executive positions are reserved for Russians or more broadly for Europeans. And then you have a so-called Tuziemna uh, administratio, or native administration, which is staffed by locals, but uh, they can't rise above a certain level um, within it. Um, and they don't have noble status. So um, you, you, you don't have this thing. You, the, the, the local nobility basically in 
or the elites of Central Asia are not incorporated into the Russian nobility. It's it's a very different kind of kind of setup. Um, so Kazakhs do figure quite prominently in the Russian administration of other parts of Central Asia, but only in subordinate positions as jigits uh, or as translators. So jigits as uh, in sort of bodyguards or, or hired muscle, I suppose we might might call them. Um, so this is, for my kind of general understanding, this is a similar to the British model in India to some extent. Much more so, yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, the British model in India varies quite a lot depending on whether it's a more militarized region like the Northwest Frontier or somewhere that's more firmly incorporated in, un, un, under British rule like South India. But um, the British certainly do make use of, um, of local elites um, very extensively, but they are not... Well, not until the early 20th century are they um, allowed to become, you know, members of the covenanted civil services, it's called. I mean, one exception, of course, is is the use of princely states in India. And there, actually, the Russians do imitate the British example as well by creating protectorates in Hiva and Bukhara, which are very explicitly modelled on the British idea of um, indirect rule, basically as a money-saving uh, exercise. So, so how did they, I mean, you know, this, and you point this out very early on that, you know, this expansion over the Eurasian continent uh, is in, incorporating incredibly diverse, though mostly Muslim people under Russian sovereignty. So how did the imperial state manage all these various languages, ethnic groups, you know, styles of living, etc.? Like a lot of other imperial states, um, the, the basic way in which they try to manage it is by um, not doing too much. <laughs> so, um, in other words, not being too ambitious about projects like, for instance, Russification uh, or the assimilation of these regions um, to the center. I mean, the Russian colonial administration in Central Asia prior to 1917 is a, is fairly ramshackle. It's very understaffed. Um, it uh, imposes a very light tax burden, and this is a deliberate policy, really, in order to um, head off potential resistance, because the Russians are very worried after their experience in the Caucasus that they're going to face more of what they think of as, as Muslimansky fanatism, Muslim fanaticism in the region. Um, so they are. Um, uh, so yes, they're, 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 they tread quite carefully, uh, particularly when it comes to religion as well. So they, they basically. Um, they don't make any attempt to sort of um, suppress Islam. They leave religious endowments largely intact. Um, uh, they try to govern at arm's length um, to a large degree. Um, and that produces actually a certain amount of stability for um, about 50 years. Um, uh, there's a kind of unwritten compact between the, um, the Tsarist state and, and the peoples it governs in Central Asia that you know they will uh, um, they will leave them alone in a sort of religious and, and a cultural sense. Um, uh, they will um, and that they will you know basically they won't have the rights of citizens, but equally they won't be they won't have the obligations of citizenship imposed upon them either. Um, and that that starts to break down in the decade leading up to the First World War for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, increasingly you have um, Russian nationalist politicians at the centre who don't see why non-Russian peripheries should get this kind of a sort of generous deal in financial terms. They don't see why the centre should be subsidising it. They want these regions to pay their way or indeed to be much more systematically exploited in economic terms. Uh, and this is very much the vision of Alexander Kuyvashen, who is the agriculture minister under, under Stalipin. Um, another is the growth of Russian settlement in the region. Um, so there are small numbers of Russian settlers um, in the 1880s and 1890s, but from about 1905 onwards, particularly in the aftermath of the 1905 revolution, 
the numbers of settlers swells um, and it begins to cause really serious tensions, mainly with the Kyrgyz and Kazakh population with whom they're competing for, for land and water. Um, and that's what leads to a, an explosion in, in 1916. Um, the First World War also sort of sees the final uh, breaking down of that compact because the state starts to try to tax much more heavily in the region and eventually tries to conscript the local population into the army. And that's that's when rebellion breaks out and reveals just actually how how shallow um, the roots the Tsarist state have put down uh, were in the region. So it's a, a, um, the stability that, that emerges after the conquest is, is the product of a slightly uneasy compromise. It's not necessarily that... Um, Central Asians are sort of wildly uh, enthusiastic about Russian rule any more than any other colonized subjects um, are. Um, but um, their intellectual leaders, the ulama, tend to say, look, resistance is going to damage us even more. Um, if the Russians allow us freedom to practice our religion, then we're not obliged to fight them. And there is an argument for saying that economically the region is doing quite well under Russian rule, although that's an area that has not really been properly researched yet. Um, so where does the, you know, you, you spoke earlier about how, you know, Russia has this image of itself after the defeat of Napoleon of a, of a great European power, and it has to keep its, you know, uh, lesser Asian um, neighbors in check. So is there an ideology of, of civilizing or an ideology that you find in other imperial contexts where the people that you're governing are lesser or inferior? Definitely, yes. Uh, and um, in fact, there's there's a there's a recent book by Ulrich Hofmeister um, looking at he calls it the the the, the white czar's burden, um, uh, and it's it's uh, yes, it's an exploration precisely of the Russian civilizing mission in Central Asia. This is rhetorically very much what they say they're doing. They are spreading um, enlightenment, prosvishenie. Uh, um, partly in the form of access to Russian culture, but also in the form of access to more universal kind of European um, ideals and ideas. Um, in practical terms, of course, they're actually doing very little. You know, they're not founding universities. Um, they set up so-called Russian native schools, but these initially at least are not very popular. And as, as I said, culturally, they're actually treading very, very carefully because they, they think that they might provoke the, the local population to rebellion um, otherwise. Um, but the rhetoric is certainly there, as is the sense that the local population are civilizationally, culturally, sometimes also racially inferior, although I would say that race is, actually plays a less important part in, in Russian ideologies of empire than it does in, in, in that of the British. Um, so they, they understand local inferiority primarily in civilizational terms, which of course makes it um, you know, very compatible with, with um, Edward Said's sort of concept of Orientalism. There's lots of people who have written about the application of that to, 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 to Russia, um, Vera Tolt, Sadiq Khalid, and, and, and so on. Um, and you know, broadly speaking, that's, that's correct, I think, that um, uh, while you know, there, there are elements within Russian culture that emphasize its sort of Asian identity and so on, actually, if we look at, if you look at the ideologies of empire, and in particular, if we look at the sort of mentality of, of um, the people, you know, the Russians who actually ran Central Asia, the army officers, the officials, they think of themselves as Europeans. They think of themselves as engaged in an enterprise which is absolutely analogous to what the British are doing in India, what the French are doing in Algeria, except, of course, they would say that they're doing it better because, you know, all, all, all empires always think that you know, they're, what, what they're doing is better than what their rivals are doing. You, you know, you, you did look at mostly from a Russian perspective, you know, using Russian sources. But, you know, either through those documents or a doc, the, the, the small amount of documentation you were able to look at from a Central Asian perspective, how did the people of Central Asia understand 
being under uh, you know rush imperial russian rule and the experience of of you know being conquered so as you say i mean that's that's an area which i think still needs further research because you know both in terms of the kinds of sources i was able to look at and my own linguistic skills i was not able to make a, a comprehensive study of, of central asian responses uh, and views of the russian conquest um I and mean, what what you find in um so you have there are different types i suppose of, of central asian sources available there's some um, uh so there's documents which have ended up in russian archival collections uh, and these usually take the form of kind of uh, rallying calls to resist the Russians. So there's a couple of examples of those um, um, in the book. Um, and um, they're described in sort of relatively neutral terms, simply as, as Urus. Um, and, um, you know, the, 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 call, the call to resist them is made partly in terms of appeals to, uh, I suppose, what we might call um, forms of, Sort of kinship or lineage loyalty, and, and partly in terms of religion. Um, um, so there's certainly a sense that the Russians are an alien um, of power in, in that sense. And then if you ha then you have the the chronicle literature, which is written by the ulamas, it's very much an, an elite, a literate perspective on the conquest. And what's striking about that is, um, I mean, it, firstly, it, it generally tends to tell you a lot more about divisions in local society than it does about how they view the Russians, which is significant in itself. It helps to explain why resistance to the Russians is often so ineffective. So um, in Bukhara, um, the two main chronicles we have, the um, um, by Ahmad Danish and, and Mohammed Sami, both of them loathe the Mangit dynasty who ruled Bukhara. Their main purpose in writing these accounts of the Russian conquest is to make the Amir um, Said Muzaffar look stupid, which they certainly succeed in doing, uh, and along the way to get a few digs in at the... Um, uh, the Shia um, uh, Irani, that is sort of descendants of Persian slaves with whom the Amir had surrounded himself and who made up the, a large part of the elite of the Emirate, whom as Sunni ulama they detested. So they're much more focused on that than they are on the Russians. The Russians are basically a sort of deus ex machina. Um, they come in and they, they punish, you know, they... They kind of reveal the rottenness that's already there. They punish um, those who... And in Kokand, it's very similar. There, the division is is a different one. It's between basically the nomadic and the sedentary elements of the Khanate. Um, but again, the, the chroniclers are mainly interested in settling scores between each other within these traditions. And once again, the Russians kind of appear as a sort of just a kind of force from outside. But when I've, I've discussed this with, with colleagues um, um, you know, in, in Oriental studies who know a lot more about these things. And they say it's very similar, actually, when you read, say, Persian accounts of the Mongol conquests. You know, they, they don't sort of spend their time denouncing the Mongols or talking about how evil they are. Uh, the Mongols are just a kind of force of nature that appears and exposes corruption and reveals basically that people have been bad Muslims and that's why they've been that's why they've been conquered. So there's there's a similar kind of thing going on. Certainly, in what the ulama write about the Russian conquest, um, they're much more focused upon their own society and upon each other and upon the divisions within their society. Um, yes, the Russians are consistently portrayed in um, as alien, very much characterized in in um, basically, uh, in religious terms, so the term that's used to them is, is often kufar, unbelievers, or nasudanian Nazarenes. Um, so they're definitely they're definitely other, as it were. But the but the chroniclers are not so interested in in it, the Russians are not really seen as moral agents. I guess that's 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 a, now in terms of how it's seen from the perspective of ordinary people. Now that's much more difficult to capture. You know, the only source I, I, I know of, at least, that was accessible to me that 
comes close to that is a set of oral accounts uh, collected in the early 20th century uh, describing the Russian attack on Samarkand in 1868, um, taken down by um, a female ethnographer um, in Kyakta, of all places, actually, where these, these two people have been exiled. And they give a sense of the sheer terror that they felt they had been part of this um, sort of unarmed, basically unarmed, untrained levy that had been raised to defend the city, uh, and the sense of sheer terror they felt on seeing Russian infantry for the first time, the discipline with which they advanced, um, uh, you know, the, the fact that their shots didn't seem to make any have any impact on them, you know, they 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 give a sense of yeah that there's something almost inhuman about them. Um, but I think there's a lot more work to be done in that area. How do you understand Russian imperialism now? different than, say, before you started this project? I guess I, I, I have a, a greater sense, in fact, of just how, um, uh, how shall I put it, um, of just how fragile I often seem to think it is. I mean, so often they're being motivated by this fear of appearing weak or of appearing stupid. Uh, and you would have thought, you know, looking in hindsight, it seems crazy. You look back on the great powers of the 19th century and the, and the sort of you know, the violence that they could wield if they wanted to. And you think, well, you know, why are they so insecure? Because this was true of the British too, um, um, most of the time, particularly, um, certainly after the Boer War, but even even before then, to some extent, there's this, this fear of falling. Um, because if you are a great power, then you're constantly worried about being knocked off your perch. It's a form of neurosis almost. Um, um, and um, uh, that, that sort of comes out over and over and over again, actually. Um, so although, you know, objectively speaking, they're, they're in a very sort of, they are in a very powerful position, certainly as in regards to their ability to, to use technolo the technology of, of, of violence in Central Asia, less so, I suppose, when it comes to knowledge, which where they're often sort of quite, um, 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 you yeah, know, they're often quite lacking. Um, they're constantly worrying about, um, about defeat, about the effects of defeat, um, and about um, about the appearance of weakness, uh, about how damaging that could be. Um, um, it's, it's quite striking, um, I would say. Um, I suppose another element is, um, and this is, you said this is an old school book, it is an old school book, the sheer importance um, of sort of trying to understand individual personalities a lot of the time, sometimes that's crucial. You know the character trying to get under the skin of the, the character of the people you're reading about because sometimes you know decisions really are made for um, very emotional uh, or apparently trivial reasons. I mean I, I don't yet know exactly how this this book is going to be received in in Central Asia itself. I've had some indications from some of my friends and colleagues there, but I think one element of it that probably won't be very popular. Well, there's two. One is the fact that I've completely ignored modern national categories, which um, is I think necessary to avoid anachronism, but again, is not necessarily going to go down too well. But but the main one is that you know this is something that had you know sort of earth-shattering consequences for Central Asia as a whole. You know this is a process that has really made the region what it is today to some extent. Certainly, which determined that it would end up as part of the USSR and, and everything that flowed from that. And yet, you know the the roots of this are it's not some kind of grand Machiavellian Russian plan. It's not um, greed for Central Asian resources. It's not a sort of, um, you know, very often the causes will ultimately seem to be rather trivial or accidental. And there's something very unsatisfying about that, you know, this, this sense that something that's of such historical moment, particularly if you are from Central Asia, um, doesn't actually proceed from a similarly kind of grand um, set of motivations. 
So finally, considering this, 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 you know, how you understand the Russian imperial thrust and the motivations behind it, you know, as this, you know, um, in many respects, kind of identity, great power status, um, also this patchwork of imperial, you know, management and governance, you know, not having a plan per se. How do you place Russian imperialism in the 19th century next to other imperial powers that are comparable, whether it's the, you know, you've spoken a lot about the British, but the French or even the Ottomans or the Americans uh, and how they, their imperial logic, you know, works? I think if you look at the British and the French, um, you can certainly find plenty of instances which, which you know, offer a similar kind of combination. I mean, if you look at the... If you look at the French annexation of Algiers in 1830, which is really the origin of the sort of modern French Empire, I mean, it's done not quite on a whim, but you know, as a kind of last desperate attempt to um, save the Bourbon dynasty, which it, which it fails to do, um, with no really clear plan as to what they're going to do with it after they, they've seized it. The pretext on which it's done is, is a feeble one, um, and um, you know, the, the process by which Algeria becomes a French colony, I, I won't go into it uh, in detail now, but it's it's in many ways just as um, sort of haphazard uh, as as what we see in in the Russian conquest of Central Asia. Um, Similarly, with you know an equally important um, instance of imperial expansion in North Africa, which is the British annexation of Egypt in, in, in 1881. Again, you know the sequence of events is a very complicated one, but ultimately a lot depends upon the British not wanting to look stupid <laughs> um, and kind of getting into a position where they feel, well, you know, we've come all this way, and if we don't bombard Alexandria, we're going to look like idiots. Um, uh, so there's definitely parallels, I would say. Um, I would say the the differences I see, I'd say actually, I think, you know, I don't work on American imperialism, but I think American imperialism actually is distinctive in being much more ideologically um, driven. The idea of manifest destinies is so important for American expansion. Um, and I don't see a kind of parallel logic actually informing um, um, Russian continental expansion. Although that's perhaps a, a theme that um, I ought to come back to at some point. Um, uh, so... Uh, where I think the Russians are different, say, from the British, is, for instance, they, they rarely make economic calculations. The British are, in the end, actually interested in the bottom line. You know, they do think about, okay, what's the value of our trade with this region? Will we, are we likely to see it increase? Um, you know, what can we do about sort of um, preserving free trade in a particular area? Um, you know, they're quite hard-nosed about it, and they expect their colonies to pay their way. Some of them, some of them do end up being subsidized, but not nearly as consistently as the Russians, um, the way the Russians tend to. So, for instance, um, India, although uh, without wanting to wade into um, uh, an endless controversy, um, it's not actually very heavily taxed overall. Um, nevertheless, India pays for its own defense and provides then an army which the British can use for other imperial um, enterprises in, in other parts of Asia. Um, you know, Central Asia never plays a comparable role for Russia. It, it always has to be subsidized from the center. It always has to be garrisoned with Russian troops. Um, the Russians, I think, are much, much more interested in power and the appearance of power for its own sake uh, and less interested in trade um, and the profits of trade for them are a secondary consideration there. They're mainly seen as a means to power, not an end in themselves. So I'd say that's that's probably a, an important difference with Russian imperialism. That was Alexander Morrison. Alexander Morrison is a fellow and tutor in history at New College, Oxford University. His research focuses on empire and colonial warfare 
particularly on Russians in Central Asia. And his most recent book is The Russian Conquest of Central Asia, published by Cambridge University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you like this podcast, please share it on social media, write a review on iTunes. This is actually really helpful to increase the podcast standing in the iTunes directory. And of course, tell all your family and friends if they're interested in the podcast. You can also feel free to drop us a line on Facebook or Twitter or at the srbpodcast.org contact page and let us know what you think, what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, what we can do better. As always, if you do like the SRB podcast, we'd love to have your support. The podcast and all of its programming is a nonprofit educational endeavor. It relies on the support of individuals and educational institutions to keep it completely free without any paywalls or advertisements. So please help us keep it that way. Uh, so go and become a patron at srbpodcast.org and join the table of ranks. And as always, I want to thank all my high excellencies, high wellborns and noblenesses who've continued to give their patronage and support this podcast over the last several years. And until next week, bye. Just don't feel your fault, be consecration.